I think some of the largest markets are undiscovered and we should always be looking there. So there's instances where we'll actually, you know, incubate companies and have in fact to go after markets that are just non-existent today. And oftentimes those are your, your black swans or your moonshots. And I think it's important to have some of those in, in your portfolios. Hey, everyone, and thanks for listening. Today, I'm speaking with Jeff Cruzy, a venture investor focused on deep tech. Jeff, thanks for chatting with me today. It's good to be here. Thanks for having me, Brett. Yeah, no problem. So to kick things off for our audience, can you explain to us a bit more about who you are and your background and how you made your way into the world of venture? Sure. So I started off my career early on um, in biotech investment banking, which I honestly did not really enjoy. I think I just took the job because many of my friends were doing that at the time. But I wanted to use it as a stepping stone into venture. I eventually got into climate tech venture capital back in the 1.0, where I was working at a corporate venture arm of the utility in Detroit, Michigan, called DTE Energy. And I thought it was a much more interesting intersection of policy, industry, markets, the three auto OEMs with our largest customers. And they owned a lot of midstream gas assets, which is sort of the competition back then on the marginal cost of energy. So I thought that was a more interesting place to go do that rather than Silicon Valley. And that was sort of my early foray into venture. And then spent the next decade or so trying to get operational and technical experience across a variety of different industries before I returned to venture. And uh, most recently was part of the investment team over at Seraphim Capital, a space specialist fund located in London. Wow, very cool. So let's talk about DTE Energy Ventures a little bit. So climate tech investing in 2008, that was a, you're an OG of the space then, or that must have been very early on before it was cool. I mean, that was sort of the first hype cycle for, for climate, I think. And it was really interesting, mainly because I think it was still a very new category at that point in time. And not a lot of investors with a lot of experience in those various fields that, you know, involve climate tech. So, yeah, it was a lot of fun. And what I think is interesting is, you know, there's a lot of parallels to space in terms of the market cycle that we're seeing today. And a lot of reemergence of the same technologies we saw more than a decade ago finally penetrating markets. So it's really interesting to be able to see how technology has evolved over the last 12 or so years. Yeah, I can imagine it's changed dramatically. Now, let's talk a little bit about deep tech. I know I used that in the intro there, but it seems like everyone has a slightly different definition of what deep tech is. So what is your definition of deep tech? I mean, it's so amorphous and means so many different things to people. I think we think about it as just, you know, more fundamental, difficult technology beyond software. But even then, nowadays, AI through software and, and, and that I would consider that new tech. So I think what it really refers to is deep technical moats that companies have from their technology. And that's sort of the common denominator there. But for us, it's aerospace and defense, climate and energy, cybersecurity and advanced computing. Got it. Let's zoom in a bit on space tech. So. What's that like? That field must be super exciting to be part of. Yeah, it's been a really New York ride the last few years. Around 2019, 2020, I think there were a lot of people that felt like they'd missed out on SpaceX, but they're more interested in other areas of space. And they really wanted to capitalize on the sector as it grew, especially with, you know, more and more investment and, you know, there being the first liquidity company with SPACs wasn't a great outcome for most. But it was really interesting to see how much more involved retail investors got and sort of the response from the industry who realized 
that they needed to reinvest in their own industry far better than they have been in the past. So, and then, you know, it's hard to ignore the rate of progress that SpaceX has been making to support much of this boom. And then I think lastly, you know, the other tailwind is there's a lot of geopolitical turmoil right now. And I think part of that is, you know, fortifying defenses. And, you know, the aerospace industry has a large hand in that. And we're going to see more and more money trickle down from governments in the startups through programs like like cyber programs or other non-dilutive funding avenues. And are you seeing startups be more open to working with the government and defense and aerospace? Because I feel like for a while there, it wasn't cool. I think there was stuff out of Google where you know, they were saying, we don't want to be you know, building this technology for missiles. We just wanted to make you know a better email. So are you seeing that change? Are you seeing startups in the venture world be more open to that idea of collaborating with the military and the defense sector? Absolutely. I think it's important to keep in mind that not all, you know, quote unquote, dual use technology involves weapons or offensive capabilities. There's, I would say, more often than not, it involves a lot of other technologies that are used to create stability and resilience. And that's really where I think a lot of people are starting to turn their attention because that comes along with a lot of non-dilutive funding and it's broad across deep tech. So I think we're starting to see investors warm up to the idea of programs like the Cipher program, whereas before the concern was that companies would get stuck just servicing Cipher contracts and not growing as a company. But I think largely that the tide has turned because, I mean, it's perfectly reasonable to be able to take that grant money and not get too off track while continuing development on your own products to, to progress the company materially. So I think VCs are getting much warmer with that. And then I think we're starting to see a lot of pushback on sort of ESG or some of the rigid definitions that can come along with it sometimes. And so that's sort of broadening the scope for a lot of VCs as well. So, yeah, I think there's a lot that's going on there that's really, you know, continuing to drive that market. And what was the program you mentioned there? It was SIBR? Yeah, Small Business Innovation Research Grants. There's a variety of three-letter agencies that provide those to startups in the form of non-dilutive funding or grants so that they can work on some specific project that the, you know, the DOD in some cases might need help with, you know, things like a battery technology that they need developed. And so they will write a grant that, you know, various startups can apply for and and receive non-dilutive funding often has to be matched with private funding. But I think that's a really great mechanism to support innovation. And what are they paying for exactly? Or what is that capital used? Does it need to be used to deliver an actual you know, final product? Or can it be used just for R&D? So it kind of progresses over time. There's a few different stages to Cibers typically. You often hear stage one with you know a small dollar amount, you know, in the tens of thousands, and that's to sort of develop a concept. Phase two might be to actually develop a deliverable in terms of the technology itself. And then, you know, a lot of times phase three is around finding um, a larger customer with government and then hopefully progressing that to a program record at some point, which means you get a nice, big, healthy contract from some agency. But those are still far and few in between and hard to get on or compete with the primes for. Yeah, I can imagine. And Jeff, can you tell us a bit more about your fund and some of the notable investments that you've made? Yeah, so we're a very young fund and we are focused around four basic pillars. The first is aerospace and defense. The next is climate and energy. The third is cybersecurity. And the fourth is a little bit of a catch-all category we call advanced computing. 
And, you know, the reason for that spread is because aerospace and defense, as well as climate and energy, will be our main thrusts. But it's really hard to talk about either of those without talking about cybersecurity or advanced computing simultaneously. And sort of the reason why, why we want that subset of deep tech. And we're focused on seed stage. And, you know, where I think we set ourselves apart is that we've got breadth and depth across the specific areas that we invest in, meaning we've developed core technology, we've invested in it, we've um, been operators. So we have networks, talent pools, and muscle memory in, term of in, in terms of insights into those industries, as well as a lot of history that we can use as sort of our knowledge base to, to hopefully make more informed and more expeditious investments and while not giving up any of the diligence that we typically like to perform. But in terms of, you know, how we think about deep tech, you know, one of the things that we'll, we'll often point to is, you know, like the non-relative funding that we can use to force multiply, but really then, you know, support these businesses with our extensive board advisors that can really help them drive the outcomes and why we've seen some success in, you know, rapidly raising rounds and going to market a lot faster than we've typically seen with other funds. So some of the investments we've made are kind of fun actually. So one of the first investments, you know, we, we've done that was in a company called Epsilon3 that's building out a platform for procedural management of spacecraft. Fun fact, the CEO, Laura Crabtree, was actually a classmate of mine, my founding partners um, at, at Farpoint. We all went to high school together. And, you know, that's something we see as just, you know, simply modernizing the aerospace industry where there's a lot of different parts that are just stuck in the Stone Age. And it looks a lot like digital transformation, believe it or not. And then, you know, into other areas, uh, more specifically like defense. For example, we were early on in a company called True Anomaly that, that's just emerged out of stealth that's, you know, building autonomous drones that to provide on-orbit defense and sort of like an anduril of space. And then, you know, a host of other companies because they're sort of the ones that are front of mind, right? But, you know, what's most important to us is that we have understanding and ability to help drive the outcomes for every single company that we work with. We don't want to be on a board and just take up room. And, you know, unless we're develop- delivering real value, then, you know, it's hard for us to justify investment. Yeah, that makes sense. And is it tough to give valuations to these companies because it's deep tech, because it's early stage? I'm guessing it's very hard to really have clear insights onto what that TAM could look like. Uh, am I wrong there? Or how do you approach you know, these valuations? Yeah, you're right. It is very, very difficult for any early stage company, let alone an early stage deep tech company, which I think maybe sometimes people might say take longer time to exit or require a little bit more funding taking on more dilution than, than other areas. But, you know, that, that gap's closing, I think. You know, we're seeing much faster development cycles. But in terms of, like, valuing those companies, a lot of times we don't value those companies early on. We'll use things like convertible loan nets to sort of punt on the value and give it a pseudo-valuation with a market cap. But if it's priced around, you know, at seed stage, how do we think about it? It's, you know, there, there's no specific formula to it. You can't be, like, a discounted cash flow or anything like that on a company that early. So you kind of look to, to market benchmarks as well as industry benchmarks to see where valuations are for similar companies and then use that to, as one of the points to triangulate where that valuation might be because then you'll look at how much they're asking for, what their plan is, what their dilution looks like for the round, if they've got an employee share option pool or whatnot. There's a bunch of variables that, that sort of help you narrow in on a valuation that are important to consider. 
And Jeff, how far out do you think you are from going to space? Is that something you aspire to do someday? And if so, what's your realistic timeline for when you think you'll go? I genuinely want to go to space. I'm not one of these people that's like, oh, I've always wanted to be an astronaut. That's not the case. I actually, when I was, I think I was in high school, I had this insanely vivid dream that it took place on the surface of the moon at a colony of some sort, but it was just so vivid. Like I feel the lack of gravity. I can taste the air and it just sort of stuck with me over the years and just really made me want to go to space. So when, when will I go? Oh man, who knows? <laughs> I, I think I need to, to make a little bit more money before I can determine when that is. <laughs> Fair enough. Now let's zoom out a bit and can you just talk to us how you would describe or summarize the state of the venture world today? It feels like there are a lot of investors that the uncertainty in the market want to see better valuations as a result. And it's taking some time to draw that out. But I think we're starting to see more of that. You know, CB Insights, I think, put out a report the other day that showed that valuations have come down to, you know, roughly early 2021, late 2020 levels. And we'll, we'll probably continue to come down to more or less exuberant levels for, you know, the remainder of the year. The, the big difference in this market cycle is that there's a lot of dry powder waiting for investment. And so I think we'll see a big push in investment, maybe towards the later end of this year, you know, because people just, they need to get that kind of capital out. They're on a ticking timeline. Makes sense. And is there a chance with that dry powder that it just gets returned to the LPs? That's one of the conversations I was listening to in a podcast a few months ago where you know, there's some optimism of it. Don't worry, everyone. You know, we have all of this dry powder. It's, it's going to be fine. And then someone else was saying that, well, they're probably just going to return it to their LPs because everyone's, you know, a little bit rocked by the market. So do you think, or what do you think is going to happen there with all that dry powder? Do you think it'll be deployed? Yeah, I suspect some of it will be returned just because there's LP skittishness. I've heard of LPs withdrawing commitments left and right. So yeah, I could see that happening, but I think it's all healthy for the ecosystem. It's you know, important to remember that we've just been in this insanely long bull run, low interest rates that's driven a lot of this exuberant behavior. And that's not the case anymore. So I think that'll be healthy for the ecosystem. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. And what would you say excites you most about this world of venture and what frustrates you the most? What excites me the most? Genuinely, just like I love being in the same room with founders that are smarter than me. And that's always the case. But it's just I really enjoy supporting amazing founders because it gives me energy to see somebody else flourish. And that's really ultimately what I like to do. And it just so happens to take the form of venture capital. What annoys me, you know, I think it's probably other VCs sometimes that annoy me because, you know, I see such over the top language sometimes on Twitter or the podcasts where people are referring themselves as visionaries or experts in these fields. And, you know, they maybe made one investment and, and never actually worked in that field before. And it's like, man, like that feels like a little bit of false advertising um, <laughs> to, to startups and founders. Yeah, I can see that. And I, uh, I do see that <laughs> a lot on Twitter with some, uh, some questionable posts. Now, another question for you is, you know, what are you doing to really stand out and attract the right types of founders that you want to invest in? Because as you mentioned, yeah, there are a lot of VCs out there and it, it seems like there's just a lot of noise in the venture world and venture capital firms seem to really be uh, ramping up their marketing efforts, it seems, in the last couple of years. So what are you doing to stand out? And you know, what do you have planned to stand out and attract the right types of founders? 
Yeah. I mean, it's deep domain expertise and experience. I think one of the largest complaints we've heard from founders over the years is investors lacking any kind of experience or insights into their business or technology or markets that can really help them and end up just with a check and nothing more. And, you know, we hear that pretty consistently. And that's where we believe we are different for standout is that we work and develop technology or invested in all the areas that, you know, we are going to invest in. And in that, I think, earns a lot of credibility with founders and why we can, you know, rapidly incubate and fund companies and not have to wait for them to come to us because we understand technology and markets very, very deeply. It's not that we read some report, we'll take a battery and we'll see right tested on a lab bench because we know a lot of battery manufacturers clients maybe aren't so truthful. But, you know, people that aren't experts in the battery industry probably wouldn't know that and they'd hire somebody to do that for them. But we were able to do that as, yeah, two guys. Makes a lot of sense. And given the current landscape right now, what are your conversations like with founders that you work with? And what are some of those tactical insights and pieces of advice that you're sharing with them to just navigate the craziness of the world right now? Yeah, I think, you know, one of them is that if you've got less than six months of runway, figure out a way to extend that as much as possible. I think it's going to be a bit tough for the remainder of the year to raise funding, even though we've seen some oddly quick rounds raised recently. I wouldn't leave it off the champ. So that's one of the biggest things. And I don't think it's unreasonable to, you know, oftentimes, you know, reopen the last round. And if it, if it were at a fairly high valuation relative to today. Another one is really, you know, teams can be broken if you cut too many people in the wrong way. And to be very mindful of that when founders are trying to extend runway, because it's important not to break the culture of a team if you've got a good one going. And that can really stymie efforts, even if you are able to raise subsequent funding, you know, founders could be making up a lot of ground. Be diligent at, at going after non-dilutive funding. I think, you know, at least within aerospace, I've seen a correlation, positive correlation, it seems like, between, you know, companies very early on that are adept at, you know, going after non-dilutive funding and being able to raise subsequent rounds. So that's another one that take advantage of it so long as it doesn't take you too too far off track, you know, in terms of your development roadmap. Yeah, but I think those are some of the main ones right now, given, you know, where the market's at. And what are your views when it comes to category creation? And have you had any of the founders that you've invested in come to you and say, hey, we think this is a category creation play? Or what are your general views there on the topic? I'm all for it. I mean, you know, I think some of the largest markets are undiscovered and we should always be looking there. So... There's instances where we'll actually, you know, incubate companies and have in fact to go after markets that are just non-existent today. And oftentimes those are your your black swans or your moonshots. And I think it's important to have some of those in, in your portfolios to sort of risk adjust it if some of your other investments are too conservative. And the last couple of questions, since I know we're up on time here. So what types of opportunities generally are you looking for? And you know, we have a lot of founders who listen in. So when should they reach out to you? Yeah, you can always get me on Twitter. My email is jeff at farpoint.pc. And, you know, always try and make myself available. What are we looking at right now? I mean, there's a lot to be done, I think, on downstream geospatial, meaning we've got lots of satellites up there collecting lots of great data. Starshield's going to be up soon, hosting tons of platforms and taking even more pictures all over the place. And I think there's a huge bottleneck in terms of DevOps within geospatial that's really not allowing anyone to unlock the greater value. 
And so I think, you know, there, there's a few major tech issues to solve before there can sort of be like a unity 3D of geospatial. But that's really a direction I think is important and interesting to, to create that sort of unified geospatial DevOps platform. In terms of climate, we're always looking at energy storage, not just electrochemical. You know, we're developing some thinking around the reemergence of compressed air energy storage, maybe more subterranean than on the surface. And that's because, you know, there's lots of great res- uh, natural reservoirs that can be used to contain things like compressed air energy at grid scale and really shave off, you know, those big peaks. And I think states like Texas would love something like that for when they're having severe weather. Other areas we're looking at in terms of cybersecurity, we're always curious about zero trust environments um, to alleviate the processing bottleneck of, of data, um, especially within um, the U.S. government. And um, there's tons and tons of data being collected on sensors all over the place, but a tiny fraction of it's actually being processed. And that's just because it has to be centralized and securely processed rather than distributed in, in zero trust environments. So something that can alleviate that bottleneck is always interesting. You know, things like polymorphic encryption have been on the horizon for a long time. Who knows if we'll ever get there, but that, that's one example. If, if there's a breakthrough there that we'd be interested in. And then in terms of advanced computing, it's the wild, wild rest right now. I've been trying to write a, you know, rewrite our thesis on it for the last month. And it feels like at the end of every day, I have to go back and rewrite it. There's amazing new information to incorporate. So I think, you know, there's obviously the generative AMI movement that's piquing a lot of people's interest with GPT and stable diffusion and other foundation models like that. It'll be interesting to see how it shakes out. I mean, it's not like GPT-3 is like perfectly baked, you know, in product ready so people can build on top of it just yet. But, you know, I would expect that it'll get there in the other models and other areas as well. So, you know, we're seeing interesting things like synthetic data generation for privacy. We're seeing new approaches to generating or doing uh, identity management. We're seeing new approaches to even things like game development. It's pretty pervasive and across, you know, so many different industries and sciences that it's hard to sort of keep track of. But we try and sort of contain ourselves and focusing on where that's deployed in the areas that we understand best. And so, for example, you know, there's a, there's a geosynthetic geospatial data company that's using generative AI and um, that just emerged that we're working with. And so that you can finally have these big models that can find, that can do, you know, incredible things with geospatial data, like, you know, find a Russian tank under some canopy of trees in eastern Ukraine somewhere, whereas that was more manually done in recent history. So I think, yeah, it'll it will be pretty transformative over the next few years. And then, you know, we we also look at like the hardware side because it's not just the software. There's there's a whole hardware acceleration component to it, especially as as it moves out to the edge. So you know, definitely keeping track of things like neuromorphic computing or edge AI. Nice. That's awesome. All right, Jeff, unfortunately, we are going to have to wrap here. So we hope to have you on again soon. Thanks so much for coming on and talking about how you view the venture world and and what you guys are backing. This has been super fun and exciting and hope to chat with you again soon. Thank you, Brett. I really appreciate you having me. All right. Keep in touch. 